I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14. Apparently, God took no chances. Somehow, in his sovereign mind, he knew how forgetful his people would be. He understood that once grace known could so easily be forgotten. Ease and comfort, plenty and prominence, all formulas for erasing the once rich penetrating balm of of mercy's rays. And so he put in place remembrances. Specific times when his people would pause to think back to what mercy felt like, what deliverance provided, what grace accomplished. He didn't want to take his chances. And so he commanded his people in Exodus chapter 12 to celebrate feasts and festivals, to remember from whence they'd come. And for them it was tabernacles and trumpets and Passover lambs and unleavened bread. But for you and for me, it's communion, it's Advent, it's Good Friday. And it's Easter. And maybe, maybe there's a possibility that that I or you have also forgotten the mercy and the grace of deliverance. And if so, we need a reminder. And that's what this story is. In Mark chapter 14, it's, it's a reminder It's a gentle pushback from the Lord against all of our busyness and complacency, our our comfort and our conveniences, our, our prejudices and our preferences, somehow to remember once again the mercy, to find ourselves in the story. Um. Back when I was in middle school, actually started in grade school, like fifth grade, sixth grade, I think even in the fourth grade. This goes way back to like the 70s. I mean, that's not way back for a lot of you, but it's way back for me. And uh, into the 80s. And we used to go roller skating every Friday night down at the roller rink, which was, it's not even there anymore. Well, there's a new one, but the one I went to is not even there. And we went every Friday night. And we skated together as as friends. It was marvelous. I mean, we had a great time. Well, that's been however many years ago that is. Now my kids, my daughter, and especially my youngest son, have taken up this, this thing of roller skating. There's a new place, you know, down south called Skate World. And uh, they open up several times during the week and then on the weekend. And my daughter, Hannah, just absolutely loves this. And she uses the rollerblades. And so she's asked if I would kind of go along with her. And so the first time I went, I put on these roller skates, you know. However many years it's been since I did that back in the eighth grade, right? 
And I actually did okay. I made my way around a few dozen times before I had to pause and get a drink and just stand there and kind of watch. But for the next three weeks after that night, every time I bent down or every time I tried to stand up or to get out of my car, I remembered. (laughs) I'm not in eighth grade anymore. My body reminded me there's something powerful about remembering from whence we've come. And that's what this story does. It helps us go back to remind us of who we were and to discover the present condition of our hearts. You see, that's what's most compelling. Now, just two short weeks before Easter, this monumental time of remembrance for all of us in our faith. And I don't want this Easter to be just another holiday for me or for my family or for any of you. I want it to transform us anew, really to convert us. Conversion from a daily life, maybe how I've slipped back into trusting in me, to more of a surrendered experience of falling before him. And that takes intervention. It takes truth-filled intervention and the conviction of the Spirit of God. And it's how I've prayed for all of us today. Lord, Lord, may you be powerful among us today through your word. Amen. Bring us back. Remind us. The sweet, tender strains of mercy and grace. Now, I want to read this passage, and then we'll make a few comments and lift out a couple of things that hopefully will help us remember. Starting in verse 1 of Mark chapter 4. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. Don't miss that. Just two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. And while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, today and in the few days and weeks leading up to Easter, you you too and I, have a time for preparation to prepare the soil of our hearts for truth-filled intervention, for an experience 
with Jesus. And you're either here because you're religiously devoted (laughs) or devotedly religious or curiously seeking or genuinely desiring a touch of his mercy. And you'll know who you are after the story, if you're honest, and if you'll listen to God. Now here in this great story are a couple of different people, each with a condition of heart, each having encountered the same person, Jesus, and now faced, you see, with a response, how to live in response. And in this story, I want you to see two conditions of the human heart that are portrayed. First, the condition of what I call the unbroken, the unbroken spirit. The second is what I like to refer to as the broken in spirit. Both are vividly portrayed and both immensely possible in all of us. And I want us to see the essence of each and hopefully discover what made the difference. First, the unbroken the unbroken in spirit. Look back at the beginning of chapter 14. The Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. Two of the most solemn times of remembrances in all of Jewish life. The feast of unleavened bread, a time where nothing in the house could have yeast. Nothing. Yeast and and leaven was a sign of sinfulness and rebellion against God. And so there was a period of time where you, you, you metaphorically cleansed your home of all of it. But of course the idea was that you cleansed your heart of these things. And then of course Passover was this monumental time that came around every year that reminded God's people, the Hebrew people, of, of God's grace as he saw the blood on the doorposts of these homes in Egypt, and as the death angel passed over Egypt and was to take the firstborn of everyone there, he saw the blood, and he passed over that home, and there was deliverance. There was grace. There was mercy. And there was death. And so this was a monumental time. Only two days before this remarkable time. And here we see a group of individuals who represent the unbroken spirit. Mark calls them um, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That's them. Um, And they were busy (laughs) looking for a sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Isn't that interesting? Here are the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, religious, oh yes, profoundly so. Devoted, of course, without question. Broken, not a chance under heaven. They're plotting against Jesus. They don't want Jesus in the life of kind of self-sacrifice simply ignored and diminished. They, they want the notion eliminated. This idea of following after this person with a radical obedience, uh, they just want it 
uh, ripped out of their experience. The unbroken, you see, never operate out of a sense of humility or genuine need. They rarely, if ever, need anything. Anything. They don't need. Um, they love intrigue. seems to be, anyway. They're always kind of meeting um, and plotting. They live off controversy. They have religion, but they're not moved by it. And here are some words that describe the hard attitudes of the unbroken. Secretive, suspicious, petty, superficial, doubting, unbelieving, skeptical, jaded, Critical, never praising of others. And it's this story, it's not even two days before the beginning of the most compelling time of remembrance of God's grace and mercy mercy in the history of the Jewish people. And they're plotting and stewing over all the good that's happening because of Jesus. And you know why? Because they didn't like him. He was a threat. He rubbed square against their comfortable lifestyles and sense of self-satisfying ways. And they wanted him removed. And the unbroken's motives are always self-focused. Always. Now it's interesting that this passage says in verse uh, 2, starting at the end of verse 1, that they were plotting, looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. This is a curious little detail that Mark throws in here. You see, they're obsessed with this kind of fear of the people. The unbroken are obsessed with the reactions and perceptions of other people. Always a popularity contest. All about people. Never about God's perspective. That's the unbroken. Operating out of a sense of self-preservation and self-sustaining and self-sufficiency. Now this story goes on. In verse 3, the scene opens in a home. Uh, He was in Bethany and he was reclining, that's Jesus, at the table in the home of a man known as Simon uh, the leper. And a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his, on his head. And some of those present, here they are again, were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and all the money given to the poor. And, and they began to rebuke this woman harshly, you see. Again, more evidence of the unbroken spirit. Unbrokenness sees the same evidence of God's mercy, but miss it and reject it. Choosing rather to remain on the periphery, either suspicious or indignant (laughs) of anyone having a genuine experience with Jesus. The unbroken are offended by the extravagant display of gratitude and devotion. The unbroken are around Jesus. They know of him. But they look down on anyone who lives radically in response to him. They rebuked her harshly. And we're going to see in a few moments 
Sadly, this was not the first time this woman felt the sting of that self-righteous rebuke. Now the unbroken have not ever, either never experienced his mercy or they've forgotten from whence they've come and forgotten the mercy they once taste, tasted and refused to acknowledge genuine brokenness. I want to go to uh, an Old Testament passage, if, if we could, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we'll see it again, just kind of the contrast between the two conditions of the heart. First Samuel, this very opening chapter, of course, tells the story of this remarkable woman named Hannah who was barren. And she was barren in the sight of her rival who was having children all over the place. And, and she was still um, broken before the Lord, calling on the Lord for mercy because she so wanted a child. And it's a very, very tender, real story, this story of Hannah. Um, and, and, and her husband, El, um, Elkanah, of course, was a, a minor character, but so deeply concerned uh, for his wife in verse 4 of chapter 1, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. He had compassion on her, you see, because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. That was her plight. She had a need, a very tender, powerful, compelling need. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Imagine. Imagine that kind of um, opposition and persecution right in your own home. I can't even imagine the shame and, and the embarrassment and the reproach that, mu that must have brought to this woman. And her husband tenderly tries to comfort her and asks her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? And once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And now Eli, the priest, you see, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. So here is this man. Now watch this in verse 10. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. That's brokenness. And she made a vow saying, Oh, Lord, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. What a tender, broken request before the Lord. And now watch this. As, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. He's watching and Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Now look at the response. Eli thought she was drunk. <laughs> Can you imagine? I thought she was drunk. How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. What a response. Unbroken spirit sees the evidence of mercy and brokenness, but reject it, miss it. Because they've forgotten from whence they've come. They've forgotten the mercy they once received. Here's Hannah, 
The word of God says she was in bitterness of soul. She was weeping and praying. The unbroken don't weep or pray. <laughs> they weep. Maybe when their bracket is busted <laughs> in the first round. <laughs> or their team loses or their stocks drop. Or their Wi-Fi goes out. They might pray for a close parking place or for a meal or for the Lord to bless the plans they've already made, but they don't weep and pray like Hannah with bitterness of soul. She thought she was drunk. Now there's another story in Matthew 20, if you'll go there, also shows the contrast. Matthew chapter 20. Towards the end of that chapter, Matthew 20, great passages in Matthew's gospel. Again, same time, right before the remembrance. <laughs> Don't miss this. Um, as Jesus, verse 29 of Matthew 20, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, always, crowds everywhere. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. You see the brokenness. Imagine just the blindness of having been in that place year after year after year, and they're operating and responding to Jesus out of a profound sense of physical and personal need, and they cry out for mercy. I love that. But the crowd, you see, the scripture says, unbroken are annoyed by such an extravagant, unbridled, indiscreet expression of need. You see that? The crowd rebuked them, told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. crowd following Jesus had never experienced what it feels like to be blind, to have a need. That's the unbroken condition. When was the last time you cried out for mercy? Where are you in the story just days before Easter, before this momentous time of our remembrance? When was the last time I or you cried out for mercy because you were in such need of God's deliverance? When was the last time you wept bitterly and prayed out of such a desperate need for what you couldn't provide for yourself? The unbroken never cry out for mercy, and as a result, they rarely, if ever, grant it. This is the condition of the heart that is unprepared for what God has planned and wants to do. 
It's remarkable the contrast. Just days before remembrance. Well, now who are these people? Let's just take a little bit of a look, kind of a um, biographical peek at some of the individuals in this story. Back to Mark chapter 14. First of all, we see Simon the leper. Now, um, it's probably a little bit of speculation, but we've got to believe that this man, if he's in the presence of these people, and in a home, and putting on a meal, that he's no longer a leper. You see, it would have been prohibited by law to be in public, let alone to eat with friends and family. Lepers knew this. Lepers knew the sting of this kind of rejection. They understood the pain, not only the physical pain and the horror of that dread disease, but, but, the, but the more deeper pain is brought, brought shame and embarrassment and horror to their lives as they were categorically shut out of the social and religious experience because of their disease. They were considered literally unclean. But this man, this, this man had a home, you see. He, he had fellowship of friends. Jesus was there. Jesus was so comfortable with him, he was reclining. I like that. He was relaxed in the home of Simon the leper. Lepers knew the abject pain of loneliness, total loneliness. What a stigma this carried. And I think Simon, I think Simon had been healed by Jesus. He might have been the leper in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus touched, to the dismay of his disciples, by the way, the unbroken, and restored him. It might have been him. But nonetheless, somewhere along the line, he had tasted mercies, sweet healing, and he had been given a second chance. But in walks another person. Enters the the story. This time it's not a man, it's a woman. A woman enters, seemingly uninvited, to a men's meeting. And she comes quietly and unashamedly. By the way, the broken care little for how others perceive them. They're not, they're, they're not so focused on themselves, but monumentally focused on serving Christ. Um, don't turn here. I just want to read Luke's uh, description of this very same story. Mark used a wide-angle lens. Uh, Luke kind of zooms in, Okay. Luke was a physician, so he was clinical. He paid attention to detail. Um, so Luke chapter 7, this is, this is how Luke tells the story. Um, same, same setting. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is Simon the leper. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. 
And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, there it is again, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Are you uncomfortable yet? <laughs> I mean, she's, she's touching him. She's weeping uncontrollably. She's kissing him. Are you uncomfortable? Well, you're not alone. When the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, this is not a rebuke, by the way, so he's in process. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. The only problem that I see with Simon's assessment is his grammar. <laughs> He's in the present tense. What he should have said is, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she was. Listen to this. Don't have to go there. Just listen. John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law... There they are, same group. And the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Listen to how put John puts this. They made her stand before the group. They had just caught her in adultery. So likely she was still unclothed. And they made her stand in front of the church. And the group said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap. Remember the group, sly, plotting, them. It's the same group. It's their M.O. In order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He straightened up and said to him, said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Hearing this, those who were there began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left. With the woman still 
standing there. Bare, exposed, ashamed, humiliated, embarrassed, broken. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. You ready for this? Then neither do I. Lord of the universe, the sovereign, holy, righteous creator of the heavens and the earth, who holds all things together by the word of his power, who is the exact representation, the image of God, standing before this woman, rightly condemned by the law which he ordained. Granted mercy. party's going on in Simon's home and the guys are laughing and yucking it up and having a great time. Jesus is relaxed. The door swings open. The light breaks in. All of a sudden a woman walks in. Two days. Two days before all of God's people were to come together in humility and reverence and remember the mercy and grace of God. And she falls at his feet, breaks open her vial, and weeps, kisses him, and wipes his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it. That's it. That's the real deal. Where are you in the story? <laughs> Not two days. Two weeks before remembrance. Have you forgotten the mercy of his touch? Have you gotten so far removed from the tender embrace of his grace and forgiveness? Not a condemning word, just mercy. Have you already forgotten his, his hand of provision when you needed it most? Has the feeling of absolute freedom 
and joy already left your mind and your heart when he spoke peace and grace to you and your family? It's only days before remembrance. Neither do I condemn you. Have you walked the horrifying long tunnel alone like this woman of adultery and faced the destruction? Only to be shown mercy and grace by Jesus who heard your cry? Have you struggled impossibly under the burden of depression, silently suffering in the sickness of your mind, Because, you know, Christians shouldn't be depressed. All you need is the Bible. But found Jesus to be the joy and strength of your life. And a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Have you been hurt beyond description by the wounding words of a friend? An accusation? Have you felt the strong Freedom of vindication of Jesus who has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Then you are among the broken. You are among the grateful. Or should be. Unless you've forgotten. And if you have. If I have. We can remember again. At the foot of the cross. Starting today, to bow before him in brokenness and gratitude and cry out for mercy again. And say, to the African slave, it's me. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Weep for your sin. Joy comes in the morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. May God be praised. Let's pray. Gracious God, this grace has set us free, and we are free indeed, and we give you praise. We bow before you, O God, anew, and confess, I confess, it's me that needs your mercy again, your grace, your forgiveness, your gentle hand of goodness. Father, do whatever it takes. To break my will, to cause me to be extravagant in my adoration of you for the sake of Christ. Amen.